0: the comic guides explain the story of Siegel and Schuster. Yep. So, like the man said, today we'll be talking about two luminaries of the comic book medium and two names that you've been seeing on the beginning of and ending of cartoons and movies for a long time. But today we're going to go into a bit more detail about exactly who they were and what led them to their creation and what eventually caused the falling out.
1: Well, I was going to say, and how they got mistreated by uh, DC as a company.
0: Yeah, I was going to leave the the exact (laughs) details to you. And so, Darren, why don't you tell us a little bit about Siegel and Schuster?
1: So, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were a couple of kids growing up in kind of the, you know, northern Midwest, as far out as that is. Jerry was born in Cleveland in 1914 to a couple of uh, Lithuanian Jews. He was the first of his family born here. He was actually or his uh, his generation was. He was the youngest of six kids. Wow. His dad was a tailor and he worked all through school. So it took him a long time to graduate from high school. He was 20 years old by the time he finally left high school because he had missed a bunch of time. During that time, he was working as a, you know, delivery boy, right? Like he, you know, drove trucks and delivered packages and that kind of thing. And at the same time was trying to sell comic book scripts because he had become friends with this guy named Joe Schuster. Joe Schuster was from Toronto where he was born. He was also Jewish. Uh, His father was from Rotterdam and his mother from uh, Kiev. They were much poorer than the Seagulls and his uh, entire life he had kind of grown up taking his dad took a series of like odd jobs and so they moved to he he actually started out he was a paperboy for the Toronto Daily Star but when he was about 10 years old they moved to Cleveland because his father had gotten a job there and he met Jerry in high school he actually graduated ahead of Jerry because he got you know all of his he he put in the consecutive time and uh, graduated in 32 But like I said, he was much poorer um, and he was an artist. He had kind of like famously had no ability to buy materials as an artist. And so his, his parents did provide him with pencils, but they couldn't get him paper, he found rolls of wallpaper while he was dumpster diving at one point and brought several rolls home with him, um, and drew on them for years, right? Like he would literally just kind of like tear them into strips and draw on the back of of the wallpaper. And in fact, uh, several of the earliest sample strips that he sent around to publishers trying to get their stuff sold was either drawn on that wallpaper or was drawn on the back of like brown paper bags. So that's kind of, you know, like the level of poverty that we're at uh, uh, with these guys. Uh, Like I said, Jerry was slightly better off because he he at least had uh, regular work uh, all through the depression and was working as a delivery guy. But they, you know, spent most of their... uh, late teens, creating comic books together. They got their first uh, title was sold in 1935. So a year after Jerry gets out of high school, they sell some comics to National Publications, which if you uh, remember from our DC show, is the company that eventually turned, or one of the companies that turned into DC Comics. And the very first stuff that they sold to National were two strips. One was called Dr. Occult, who is uh, still around today, uh, periodically showing up as the uh, trench coat uh, magical detective guy. And the other one was called Henri Duval, and he was basically a musketeer, a French musketeer who had adventures. And they sold, uh, you know, these strips. They were getting, you know, uh, $10 a page between them to split at the time which was you know not a bad rate they were able to kind of you know make a living they could afford an apartment that sort of thing they were living in cleveland and they would mail their stuff to new york to dc to get you know their their scripts and letter pages and that sort of thing directly to dc where they would print them in the comics they worked fast they worked hard dc you know saw that they were reliable providers their stuff came on time every month and gave them several more gigs to, you know, with each new comic that uh, DC was putting out, they would, you know, ask Siegel and Schuster what their new bit was, what their new strip was, and they would get another one uh, sent to them. So they did a series called Radio Squad in 1936. They did two features that appeared in the first issue of Detective Comics in 1937. They created Slam Bradley, who is a detective who still occasionally shows up in modern DC continuity. And they had another series called Spy, which starred a uh, international, you know, kind of like Man of Mystery type spy named Bart Regan, who was also a feature in Detective Comics that didn't last very long.
0: You said that, that they would, you know, uh, ask what their next, like, assignment was. How did it work back then? Did they, like, submit what their, like, new characters were and what, like, the basic, or did they get, like, we want a spy series and then they created it around that?
1: At first, it was completely whatever you guys have done, right? Like, you would send us samples, and we'll take a look. If we like them, we'll buy them. Oh, okay. By the time they got to the point where DC was doing specialized comics, they would then say, hey, we've got a new comic coming. It's detective-themed, got any detectives. Gotcha. Right, like that level of, of asking for it. They They certainly didn't give them any kind of, you know, we need a character that's like this like that like that or whatever but they did at least kind of narrow it down by genre yeah. and say hey if you got you know this, this strip is just going to be entirely about mysteries so if you've got a mystery thing send it our way and we'll take a look gotcha so they they're making a pretty solid living like i said 10 bucks and you know 10 bucks a page at the pace that they could turn stuff out for doing four or five different strips was enough to maintain, you know, an apartment for two young guys living in Cleveland. Their best idea, they thought, um, they still considered comic books to be kind of slumming, right? Like they were working for Major Wheeler Nicholson at DC and, uh, and Donnerfeld, and they knew that comic books weren't where the money was. The money was in newspapers, right? That's where, you know, comic strips, cartoons. That's where you could make money doing that. And so their best ideas, they didn't offer them to the comics first. They kept trying to sell what they considered their best ideas to newspapers and were kind of like sending their second best stuff to comics. And they thought their best idea was this character who was an alien who, you know, his planet had been destroyed on the far side of the galaxy. And he was, you know, shot to earth as a baby. And grew up in the Midwest and became in this incredibly powerful adventurous character who would be called Superman. Well, that'll never work. And right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, newspaper strips, the newspaper syndicate uh, editors believed it would never mm. work, right? They're like, that's ridiculous. That's no, that's a dumb idea. They didn't really care for Joe's art. They certainly did not think it was a saleable idea, you know, to do on a on a regular daily basis. So they spent about five years shopping Superman around to pretty much every newspaper syndicate in America and Canada as well, because they also tried to put it in Toronto. Um, Completely failed. Nobody wanted it. They couldn't get it uh, uh, sold to them. So finally, in 1938, They said well you know the dc pays us you know reasonably close to on time and a decent amount of money you know the next thing next time they ask us for something let's just go ahead and sell them superman let's just go ahead and do superman for them and by this point they had several stories of superman written up and jerry had basically uh based the look or the, the the idea of superman on douglas fairbanks the actor okay that he was you know he was like built that way he had dark hair um and would wear this kind of a uh, you know, what looked almost like like a circus outfit.
0: Just for people who are, you know, born in the era I was born. Who was Douglas Fairbanks?
1: Douglas Fairbanks was a famous kind of like action hero, uh, okay. uh, movie star. He was Zora. Okay. He was, uh, you know, was the the thing he's kind of most famous for today. But at the time, he was in dozens of, you know, different movies. Was famous for being very athletic. He was an acrobat. Okay. Right. And so he did all of his own stunts and did them very well. Gotcha. uh, To the point where he kind of was famous for his fight scenes and his action scenes, swinging off of chandeliers and that kind of thing. And then in order to kind of like differentiate this, Schuster, uh, Schuster, when he would draw Clark Kent drew him to look like Harold Lloyd. And Harold Lloyd was a comedian at the time, was a comedian in silent movies mostly, with that kind of like nebishy guy with glasses and a suit, you know, and hat kind of thing, who was all thumbs, who was always falling over himself, was clumsy and was just generally basically what today we would call a nerd. And so decided that if like they had a character who had both of those attributes within them right like mm-hmm. that he started out his secret identity you know was as this kind of like nebushi guy who didn't seem like he was the action hero who would then reveal himself to be the hero you know that's like i said that's the that zoro already existed as a character right. some characters like that already existed but nobody had really kind of like done that level of duality in a character you know, Zorro doesn't spend much time in his secret identity right. in the stories, whereas Clark Kent is incredibly important to pretty much every Superman story. The fact that Superman is using this identity to learn about the the, uh, the, the disasters and the crimes and everything that he needs to go use his powers on um, means Clark Kent appears all the time. Right. Also, Clark is, of course, uh, Superman's kind of like regular access point to Lois, right? That Lois Lane was also in the stories from the very beginning as this, you know, kind of like My Girl Friday type, you know, action reporter. Reporter was one of the few jobs at the time in the 1930s that a woman could do and have it not to be considered strange that she was, you know, like running around hanging out with the guys,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? It was, it was one of the few uh, professions that was like dramatically interesting and yet also open to women which is why there are so many in the 20s and 30s kind of like great movies about women reporters. So, so you know, Lois was based on this kind of like fine tradition of this is, this is a place that a character can get into some action, can get into some trouble and regularly need to be rescued by, you know, by our hero. In order to draw Lois, Jerry and Joe hired a model in Cleveland uh, for the earliest strips. And her name was Joanne Carter and as it turned out they didn't really you know they they had several sessions in which joe drew pictures of her in various poses that uh, kind of like developed the look of what lois was going to look like and then they didn't see each other again after that four years eventually like you know 10 plus years later they would in fact actually meet joanne again at a party in new york in 1948 at a costume ball after the war was over and restruck up you know the the Joanne came up to Jerry and said, I don't know if you remember me, but you guys drew pictures of me 10 years ago, and I think you, you used me to be Lois Lane. And they were like, oh, yes, absolutely. No, we remember you. And within a couple of weeks, she and Jerry were dating, and they wound up actually getting married. Oh, that's a, that's a sweet story. So despite the fact there was a, this 10-year break that they were not an associated, you know, associated with her, she knew them you know, before they were famous, right? Mm-hmm. So. And she was a, uh, she was also, you know, a, a, pretty solid business person. She actually sold cars for a living after she stopped being a model. And was all through the fifties and sixties. While Jerry was dealing with other stuff that we'll talk about for this. She actually kind of like kept them afloat with her, uh, used car business that she sold. No, well, so anyway, so they take Superman and they present him to DC to, by this point, major Wheeler Nicholson is pretty much out at DC. And Jack and Harry are, uh, are in charge. Once again, if you wanna go check out the podcast that we did about, uh, you know, Jack Leibowitz and uh, Harry Donnenfeld, please do so. But so they are putting together a new st- series. It's gonna be called Action Comics. And they want action heroes who are, you know, lots of punching and running and jumping and driving fast cars and that kind of thing. That's what they're looking for. And they s- say, here's what we've got for Superman. And they show him a 10 page story once again, drawn on, you know, terrible paper, uh, as a sample, because they've been carrying around these samples for several years trying to sell them. Right. So DC buys the Superman story. They sign a contract with DC. Basically it's a, like I said, it's a, uh, it's a 13 page story total. They get $10 a page. So that's $130. And then they get a contract for a 10 year contract that says, uh, they can continue to, do the character for DC. If DC wants more of these, these guys have right of first refusal. They can't take the character away and give it to some other writer artist team. Right?
2: Was that common their at con- this
1: time? Or was this like... That, that, it was common to, both sides were common, okay. right? Like it's it was a sign that they were kind of a, a respectable, you know, set of writers and artists and a respectable publisher that their contract did say, well, you can't steal this from us. Okay, yeah that we have the right, it's our character, or it's not, it's our character, it's your character because we're selling him to you, but you can't just toss us off the strip and hire somebody else to do it, Okay. right? We now have a 10 year contract that says, we will be the people who do Superman for you if you want more Supermans. If you don't want more Supermans, then we're done, right? That's as it said, but all we're getting paid for this one is that $130. Now it's $130 in 1938, $130 $130 then is worth about $2,300 today, right? So, so did, that, does
0: that mean, is that, like, was that common? Because this is going to come up a lot more as we get later on about, sure. you know, did DC, like, think that this was going to be a big hit for them when they first looked at it?
1: No, not at okay. all. Well, I mean, they liked it enough to publish right. it, right? It was going to be the in their number one issue of Action Comics, right? Yeah. It was going to be, uh, you know, but they certainly had no idea it was going to be anything like what it was, right. but they paid the equivalent of a couple grand mm-hmm. for one issue, right? That probably took them each a couple weeks, you know, if at best to turn that out. That's not bad, yeah. That's not a you know, ridiculous amount of money, especially if you're doing four or five of them at a time, yeah. right? Um, but obviously, $2,300 for the complete rights to you know superman and everything that will happen from superman going on from that point is you know one of the most ridiculous steals of uh you know of value of ip that's pretty much ever happened absolutely so they they're of course delighted right we sold them hey this is great we've been trying to sell this character for a while we finally made some money off of him and they continue to churn out you know every month they send another uh 13 page story of superman of course, action is a smash hit on a level that nobody expected. Uh, it's flying off of newsstands. They can't print them fast enough to get, you know, get these in kids. Kids are, uh, you know, they're they're safety pinning, you know, blankets around their necks and jumping off of buildings mm. and stuff and just running around dressed up as Superman. Superman becomes an enormous cultural thing just within a few months. Um. Within uh, a couple of years, there are now three monthly comics starring Superman, right? There's not just action, but Superman spins off to his own comic called Superman. And then there's the World's Fair comic, which will eventually become world's finest that he winds up having to share with Batman. But still, it's more new Superman coming out every month. Nobody else has three comics a month, right? That's a, that's a ridiculous amount of, of stuff. On top of that, they license Superman to be a newspaper strip they sell it to a syndicate dc sells it to a syndicate and succeeds where siegel and schuster have failed for five years in doing this they turn around and license it themselves as a sub license out to mcclure syndicate and all of the newspapers in the country that buy from mcclure syndicate now have a superman daily strip in their newspaper which siegel and schuster are doing now they've got a radio show pretty soon and suddenly they've got a radio show uh that is you know generating that they need new plots three times a week, right? It's, there are literally three 20-minute episodes a week that they have to come up with more stories for. Um, and so they are very quickly swamped with work, right? So when we're talking about you know the rights, whether how DC treated them, you have to keep in mind that over the course of the first nine years that they were working together, from 1938 to 1947, uh-huh. just for the work-for-hire work that they did without owning anything, they were each paid about two hundred thousand dollars. That is in modern money about three million. Oh wow! Right now, that's over nine years. Yeah. Right, so that's you know that's not like it, once again it doesn't mean that they were you know out eating caviar every night or whatever, but they were paid very well by comic book creator standards. But they didn't own anything, right? They didn't right. get a piece of any of these comics, they didn't get a piece of the licensing deal, the syndicate. They didn't get a piece of the animated cartoons. When they came out, they didn't get a piece of the radio show. They didn't get a piece of any of the other deals, everything that had Superman's picture on it, DC was making money from. And Siegel and Schuster did not see any of that. They only got their regular salaries for the work that they were doing. Now, their regular salaries were very high and Neither of them were particularly good at taking care of money. So they were not, neither of them did a particularly good job of saving this $200,000 or so that they were paid over the course of nearly a decade. Um, but they had no reason to believe that this was ever going to stop. Right. That's they are, as far as they are concerned, uh, they have a job for life, uh, you know, turning this stuff out. Um, Jerry continues to, uh, Joe is now full, right? Like Joe's got a studio in Cleveland. He's got people working for him, um, to help finish his stuff because he's got to do a newspaper strip and three comics every month for this. They've abandoned all of the other characters that they were doing and still Joe can't keep up with all of the art that they need. So he sets up a studio with a bunch of young artists working with him. And some of those guys would go on to become famous as Superman artists themselves. Wayne Boring, for example, was one of his very first uh, kids that he brought into his studio, literally to help him finish, you know, like newspaper strip on time. Gary had some time left over because, you know, he wrote very quickly and it's way faster to write a 13 page comic than it is to draw one. Um, so he keeps sending new characters to DC to uh, work with and to work with other artists. Uh, The only one of those that actually is a success during all of that time is the Spectre. Mm. Jerry Siegel creates the Spectre with Bernard Bailey doing the art because Joe's too busy to work with him anymore. Uh, And that uh, is in more fun comics Uh, that goes on to be. Not really a huge hit at the time, but it was solid. The Spectre was good enough to be in the Justice Society and that kind of thing. He was, you know, the Spectre was kind of a response by Jerry to Superman. As Superman got more and more powerful over the course of his stories and, you know, was shown doing more and more crazy things, the only way to top him was with a character like the Spectre, who was just infinitely powerful, Right. right? Like he could do literally anything. He could turn invisible. He could read your mind. He could do all of these things that even Superman couldn't do. Um but he never really kind of like caught on as a character. So Jerry then has another idea, or he had very another idea very early on. He thought it would be a good idea since we've told the story of how Superman came from this alien planet Krypton uh, as a baby and then was raised in you know the, the the Midwest before coming to metropolis as a grown- up to be a reporter. Uh, it occurs to Jerry well he had powers all of that time. Right. Like he was a kid with powers. We should do some stories about when Superman was a kid. We should do some stories about Superboy. Superboy should be a character for this. Mm -hmm. And he submitted that to DC uh, very early on. I think within four or five months of the first appearance of Superman, he was trying to sell a Superboy story. And DC said, yeah, no, not really. We don't we don't think that would be a good idea. We don't want to have people making fun of this character you know we don't want a kid version of him running around that just doesn't uh, that's kind of undercuts the character. Um he tried again in December uh 1940 this time with a complete script. It wasn't just the idea. He literally wrote an entire 13-page script uh of a story about Superman as a kid and that was turned down again. So as far as he was concerned, DC had no interest in this and he didn't try again, right? So when this happens, so he's he's now still working with them. World War II, of course, is going to come along and interrupt all of this. World War II, kind of, you know, begins for Americans basically with uh, with Pearl Harbor, um, and uh, after Pearl Harbor, both of them are called along with pretty much everybody else. I mean, these guys are still very young, right? They're both, uh, you know, they're not even thirty at either of them. They're making good money, and they are uh, brought to by the draft board in for tests. and Joe fails his physical. Uh, because his eyesight is so bad, his eyesight has just been deteriorating throughout his time doing this. It's getting harder and harder for him to draw, uh, more and more of the work that has his name on it is actually being done by the kids in his studio that are working for him. Oh Um, and he can't actually pass his physical. His eyesight is so bad. Jerry on the other hand is in perfectly good shape. Uh, you know, young unmarried man who's 28 or 29 at this point, um, he gets drafted. Uh, And he goes, he gets posted to Honolulu uh, for the army um, and stops working for D.C. Despite the fact that he's not doing any work for them, his name is still showing up on a bunch of stuff that was being written by other people to fill in to replace him, right? They didn't change the credits on the first page, so it still looked; it still said Siegel and Schuster on comic strips that neither of them had anything to do with at that point. Um, Siegel goes off to the war and winds up in Hawaii where he is writing for Stars and Stripes and Yank magazine and that kind of thing. It's the, uh, you know, the, the military, uh, magazines and does, uh, some gets, works with a couple of other people who are artists and does a funny superhero strip kind of making fun. I mean, he obviously he didn't have the rights. He couldn't do Superman for the strip, but he did this series called Super Sam, uh, instead uh that was kind of like a comedy superhero thing about a superhero who was a soldier who was like a you know big screw up as a soldier and was always doing things wrong and it was a you know it's a it's a satire mm-hmm. um and DC found out about it and they were very mad Ooh. right they thought super sam was making fun of superman and they were very unhappy that the guy who created superman for them was making fun of it only a few years later so that was kind of the beginning of DC and Siegel not getting along um so, uh, in 1944, while Siegel is in Hawaii, more fun comics uh, DC uh, prints sends uh, a script that Siegel had written and had been rejected years ago. They're like so short-handed on stuff, and they're so kind of like desperate for more material. They send one of the Superboy scripts to Schuster, who then draws it, and then it gets printed in. More Fun Comics number 101. Nobody tells either Schuster or Siegel that this happens, right? Siegel doesn't find out about it until a couple of months after it's already on the stands.
0: Because he, he's not looking and at all sure, the stuff that's going through the studio at this point.
1: Right, right, right. exactly. Yeah, he's not, I mean, he only literally just... Um, Schuster didn't know that Siegel hadn't approved that, right? That, Sieg, that Siegel had never gotten paid for this script. Oh. Uh, for it. He had just was sent by DC a script with Jerry's name on it and went ahead and drew it, right? for his regular, he, that, But they had never gotten a check for the Superboy script that he wrote in the first place, right? He could, Schuster got paid for his art, but Jerry never got paid for the script that they used. So now Jerry is extremely unhappy uh, with DC, but he's off in the army. There's not a great deal that he can kind of do about this, yep. right? But now at this point, you can kind of see how both of them are kind of starting to get pretty angry at each other. Right. This is not really working out. Siegel and Schuster see how much money D.C. is making off of their stuff. And while they are, like I said, they're making an OK amount of money, each of them is making 20 plus grand a year uh, at this point, which once again, in local in the money at that time is over three hundred thousand dollars in salaries mm-hmm. that they're making. Um but they still see how much money everybody around them is making from this. And they're like, we should own a piece of this. We should, we should, we're not happy with how this is being done. And th- they're literally stealing our stuff, right? As from Jerry's point of view, it's like they took my Superboy idea, uh, and took my script that I wrote and printed it without ever paying me.
2: Right.
1: So now they're upset. The war finally ends. Uh, and they come back to, Or, you know, uh, Jerry comes back to Cleveland uh, and starts, you know, they talk with talks with Joe and they say, "Okay, here's what we want to do. We're going to take D.C. to court and they're end by now. Remember, they've got a 10 year contract. Right. That started in 1938 Mm -hmm. and it ends in 1948. Right. So in 1946, they kind of start the legal process of saying when our contract is done, we want Superman back right where we own this character not you guys mm-hmm. so we want to have they start with the process and say we want to annul the entire contract and we want our ownership of this character restored on the grounds that all that you paid for all that DC paid for was for that first 13 page story not outright ownership of the character okay right mm-hmm now that's an interesting question right like there's nothing in the in the actual contract which is only a few pages long that kind of explicitly says we own the character forever but it also doesn't explicitly say we don't own the the character forever and kind of the standard way things worked in comics at that time assumed that they did own the character right that was just the, the the way of doing business on the other hand, there had never been a character as valuable as Superman before, so nobody had ever really fought over this in court. It was kind of like a wide open territory uh, as far as like establishing some case law for this. While they were at it with this suit, they were like, uh, also, Superboy is a separate character from Superman. He's not the same guy. It's a, it's a, it's a different idea, the idea of this, you know, this kid with these powers. Uh, and so we own that too. You don't own Superboy. Even if we lose the who owns Superman case, the who owns Superboy case should be treated as a separate case because he's not the same guy. DC responds, he is too the same guy. That's ridiculous. Your entire premise of your character is it's this other character when he's younger. So you can't tell us that Superboy is a different person from Superman. We know Superboy grows up to be Superman. Right. Mm -hmm. So our legal defense is if we own one, we own both of them, you know, Uh, the third part of the, of the case, the third part of their suit against them is we're pretty sure we're not getting our full royalties from the radio show. We're supposed to get 5% royalties from the radio show uh, from this. And we're pretty sure DC is messing with us because we don't seem to be getting very many checks and they're not very big. We're pretty sure the radio show is more profitable than this. Uh, So we want the court to audit DC's books and prove whether or not we're getting our fair share. And so, you know, DC is fighting them on all three of these fronts. This case goes to court in New York um, and uh, takes it takes about a year uh, for the case to actually be seen finally winds up in the New York State Supreme Court. Uh, basically, what it says is, uh, in fact, this is a work-for-hire contract and DC owns Superman. Your contract is only for the, uh, you know, for the right to be the writer of Superman. And starting in 1948, they don't have to keep paying you. They can hire other people to do Superman, right? But they own the character. Uh, and while they're still messing with the other ideas at that point, when uh, a judge writes a statement in it, what is called an interlocutory statement, uh, in which he 's saying i 'm not certain about this we 're actually going to have to go to the trial, but i 'm pretty sure that Siegel actually does own the rights to Superboy, right? Nobody ever gave him a contract to superboy right uh, he didn't get paid for the script that he wrote for superboy d c still hasn 't paid him for that, uh you know however many years later at this point <laughs> um, so you know it's, it seems to us that we 're pretty sure Siegel's going to win this one, but they didn 't actually finish the trial there. Right. right? At that point, DC says, okay, given this situation that we own Superman, but it looks like we may have screwed up on Superboy For this, we offer to settle out of court. Uh, we're not going to do the audit. You're going to, the audit will stop, but we will pay you $94,000. The two of you between you, uh, $94,000, Which, once again, at this time is about $1.3 million in modern money um, for all the rights to Superboy. And Siegel and Schuster, at this point, without a great deal of money and with no, apparently, no chance of winning the main suit, you know, that's going to bring them that much more money, they kind of look at this and say, you know what? All right, we'll take it. Right. So DC basically settles out of court with them in 1948 for this deal for the ninety four thousand dollars in order to say to pay for the rights to the Superboy story, the Superboy character separate from Superboy. This is, of course, once you know, you've sued your bosses, once you've sued the guys who like own this pretty much means that their freelance careers at writing for DC are done. Right. There's DC will never hire them again uh, for anything. takes their names off of the credits of every issue. You know, it used to always say by Siegel and Schuster in the first panel of every Superman story, they remove that, um, and get a injunction against them, get it in a separate thing saying, not only will we never hire you again, you will never work for us in this business. Again, we will in fact, sue you if you ever use the word super in a character or a creation that you have going forward, uh for another publisher right you are too closely associated with the name superman therefore if you use the word super it'll mean you're making fun of us like you did back in the war with super sam right they're still mad about you know the super sam case from five years ago the the super sam strip so they make a point of just saying you know what you are forbidden from using the word super wow and they accept it they don't there's pretty much nothing they can do about
0: it was that one ever tested support or did they just
1: like leave it they never did test okay. it. no uh, they, they never actually tried it sounds like what they story. did do what they did do is instead go off and say okay we're looking at what's going on in comics right now. it's 1948 um Superman is still selling Batman is still selling a couple of other superheroes are still selling but really superheroes are kind of dying out as a thing like we're right? about like when a we go DC... back to
0: our dc episode we kind of talk about when this starts to happen
1: exactly right which starts really around 47 48 with all the people coming back from the war uh so they're looking around and saying they're, they're not stupid they're like well you know creating a new superhero now is probably not the best idea what are we going to do for a strip and they decide to in fact do a superhero story but what they're going to do is do it as a comedy they're going to create a character who will be a satire on Super. He's going to make fun of Supers for this. And, hey, while we're at it, why don't we make a little fun of DC, too, since we're kind of mad, still mad at them in this case, right? So they create uh, this character, and they're like, you know, first of all, we own this character outright. Uh, you know, anybody who wants to work with us, we're never going to do one of those deals again mm-hmm. for this. If this character takes off, we own him. And they go to a guy named Vin Sullivan at Magazine Enterprises and they sell him the concept of this character called Funny Man. And they spend an awful lot of time promoting Funny Man. Joe, remember, he's got the bad eyesight. Mm. It's taking him forever to draw these mm. because he's kind of, you know, he's going blind over the course of this. Um, and so he uh, still goes ahead and draws it. You know, they're still hoping that the name Siegel and Schuster means something. Uh, and uh, Vin Sullivan publishes it. Funny Man lasts for six issues of a monthly comic, does get sold as a syndicated newspaper strip, but basically fails. Uh, the newspapers are not abreast when it actually does come out, and it gets canceled within the newspapers, and the, the syndicators basically say, yeah, we don't want any more. We're done. We, we're So Funny Man basically goes nowhere. Um, so now... Here's their situation, right? Like they've made a bunch of money over the last decade, but they haven't really taken care of it. Neither of them has done a very good job of saving money from this. Joe now is largely out of work because he can't draw fast enough uh, to make a living as an artist. And Jerry is, you know, DC has a lot of friends in in the Comic book publishing business, right? Like now that DC is kind of, you know, blackballing him and saying he'll never work for us again. A lot of other publishers don't want to work with him. So it takes him quite a while to kind of like get up to speed writing for this. He writes some magazine articles. He goes back to driving a truck. His wife is selling used cars. I mean, this is, he's trying to make a living. So, like, the guy who was making all of this money, famous as the creator of Superman, is basically, you know, impoverished again in the 1950s it gets to the point finally uh jerry does get some gigs for charlton comics when charlton comes along and he writes a few issues he writes some scripts he creates these characters called mr muscles and nature boy none of them sell terribly well and charlton doesn't pay that great anyway but at least he's kind of like you know making some something of a living doing uh schuster outright broke draws a few horror comics um, for various publishers. But like I said, he can't finish them fast enough to make any kind of a living, right? It takes him three months to draw what it used to take him a month. And so he just can't work at that rate. He also anonymously starts doing fetish sex comics (laughs) uh, without, you know, unsigned, basically. Most of them are kind of a bondage and sadomasochistic comics for this drawn exactly the way he used to draw Superman. Right. That's, you know, if, when you see these comics, it's 100 percent clear that this is the, the same art style that was in those first few, you know, Superman. I've stories, never really right? thought of
0: those as like in a, that is like an erotic art style.
1: So, yeah, no, no, that's, not particularly. Uh, and arguably. yet, you know, there's a lot of naked women and whips and chains and that kind of thing in these stories. The way this becomes famous is in 1954, one of the comics that he drew, which was called Knights of Horror. Um, would be found in the possession of the Brooklyn Thrill Killers, yeah. who were these kind of like famous serial killers in Brooklyn uh, in the mid fifties. And the comic, because the comic was you know they had several issues of it in their apartment, these two guys, uh, was the 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 comic went on to be kind of famous, right? Nobody knew who drew it. It was not signed or anything. Fact that Schuster. Was not, was I, what was the artist was not something that they were able to determine and prove until the 2000s after he was dead.
2: Huh.
1: Right? It, it took 50 years to figure out what artist had actually done these anonymous bondage comics. And it turned out it was Joe Schuster. And so, as you might imagine, those comics are worth a great deal of money right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, this is what Joe is doing, right? Like he's on, he's on welfare. He's, you know, he's, he's struggling to get by. Uh, In 1959, pretty much all of the people at DC who Siegel had fought with are gone, right? Julie Schwartz is pretty much the only guy left there from the original uh, operation. And Donenfeld's son is running the company and Donenfeld's son barely remembers who Jerry is. So Jerry like kind of goes back to DC and says, guys, really? You know, let's, let's let bygones be bygones here. It's been 10 years. You know, will you throw me some work, put my name on something? You can advertise, hey, Jerry Siegel is back and, you know, kind of thing, and and, and maybe make some money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and honestly, DC is short enough on actual writers at that point that they do accept some scripts from him, but they won't give him a byline. They're still mad enough at that to say you don't get to your name on any of this. But we will pay you if you want to do some anonymous scripts for us. So he's uncredited on so he all of those, huh? He's uncredited on all of these. Wow for it and to almost as kind of like a you know slap in the face like one more slap in the face the first thing they hire him to do is a bunch of superboy comics. <laughs> right which is the title Riddle. obviously that started all of this problem but he takes it he takes the work um and uh, he you know he uh he he writes the superboy stuff he writes some of the early legion of superhero stories uh that ed hamilton was the primary writer anytime ed hamilton missed an issue or whatever missed a missed a script um jerry would come in and do a fill-in story so he's doing getting a a little bit of work um when marvel starts up a couple of years afterwards jerry of course turns to them and offers wants to write for them um and stan lee is kind of like geez you know i remember when you were a big deal right like i was a kid in the golden age working for timely and stuff Jerry Siegel was a guy that we looked up to. This was a guy, you know, we wanted to do. So I feel terrible that you're in this circumstance. Um, you're down on your luck. I totally will give you some work. Just, you know, I don't really need a lot of stuff, but, you know, here, do some, do some stuff. We'll stick it in the filing cabinet, and maybe we'll eventually get to using it. And so he writes a couple of Human Torch stories for Strange Tales. Uh, he writes a very early Kazar story. One of the first Kazar stories is by Jerry Siegel. He writes an Angel solo story. In Marvel Tales, after like the X, just after the X Men have first appeared, he does the the first Angel solo adventure. is by Jerry Siegel. Um, most of these are done under the name of Joe Carter, which was a, a you know his his fake name, his his pen name, basically that he was using for this sort of. So movie. why do you, why do it underneath? Uh, like, what was the purpose of that? Why do it underneath? Because uh, because it was kind of like every everybody still knew that he was a problem. And Stan was just kind of like throwing him work to be nice rather than be like provocative about it and say, Hey, DC, we hired your guy. Gotcha. You know, it was kind of a, no, we'll give him some work, but you know, write it under a different
0: name. Gotcha. Stan wasn't trying Um, to kick DC. He was just trying to help.
1: Right. Exactly. Stan has no interest in, you know, in in poking DC any farther than he already is. right? Right. And Stan says later on that it was like tremendously sad to be working with, with Jerry. Um, At one point, he gets a script from Jerry mailed to him, right? And he opens the folder and it's, you know, typed on terrible paper on a, like, broken typewriter kind of thing. And as he's reading it and he starts scratching and he realizes that the manuscript that's been sent to him is literally covered in fleas, right? Like, the, 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 (laughs) the manila folder has, like, fleas inside it that are, like, jumping out onto his desk. And Stan is just like, okay, this is not, you know... This I feel terrible for this guy for it. He's clearly living in you know pretty much abject poverty, uh, trying to make a living. This is the guy who invented the superhero, right? This is, yeah. this is awful. So uh, Siegel, in the mid-60s, he goes to Archie. He writes for the Mighty Heroes, for the, the Crusaders line for a bit. Uh, gets about a year's worth of work out of that. And then the entire line gets canceled uh, out from under him, right? None of them were selling. Um, Schuster... Uh, moves in with his mother. He moves to Long Island, uh, New York, where his mother lives for this kind of like does some delivery work himself, trying to sell some cartoons and some paintings, uh, you know, kind of based on his, his name and that sort of thing. That's not doing very well. Uh, so the two of them really are in kind of a messed up situation. In uh, 19, the, the Copyright Act of 1909 meant that copyright on a character lasted 28 years that was the law at the time then at that point the owner of that copyright could renew it for another 28 years and then it would be public domain okay right yeah. that was that was the law at the time the law has changed several times since then Disney. but that was the law at the time so it gets to 1966 it's now been 28 years since the first superman story and Siegel and Schuster hire a lawyer, you know, get a lawyer, the cheapest lawyer they can find for this and file a copyright claim on Superman uh, in the hopes that DC was going to screw it up and not do it, right? Um, which, of course, DC did as well and applied to have their copyright renewed for another 28 years, which would have carried them to 1994 at that point, mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then Siegel and Schuster, when it turned out that like this uh, attempt to get the copyright back one more time fails, they decide to sue DC one more time. They're going to try again on this uh, with a different court, different case. It's now, you know, uh, so they've got some new uh, uh, attempts to file this. The laws have changed a couple of times and it's now 20 years later. They give it another shot. Um, Understandable it's worth a try if they win that, it's you, huge know, right not, not much to lose right? right absolutely uh and so the court finally rules uh, in 66 the case starts in 69 they get their first ruling from the, from the uh New York state supreme court that in fact the first case uh by winning the first case meant that all rights to the character including copyright rights uh belonged to national/dc right the first case established Superman is owned outright by DC. Um, And so part of their case was, well, but we started writing Superman. We created Superman way before we ever started talking to you, right? This is not work for hire. We sold it to you based on a completed thing. Um, And so they look that over. They accept, you know, that that's a reason to reopen the case. Look at it and say, yeah, no, the version of uh superman that appears in action comics number one is basically what national wanted from it right like this is the, they, they've established that this is what national was asking for and therefore this is work made for hire okay they appeal to the second circuit court takes another five years for this uh in which uh finally the case is dc does in fact legitimately still hold the copyright um But they overturned the ruling that said that Superman was work for hire because they say that the revisions made between them first creating Superman and the first time he appears in the comics were, quote, minor at best. doesn't really help them, except that they have, in fact, proved this case, and that's a a precedent that is going to be carried on by other people uh, later in the case. It doesn't change the fact that DC won the first court case and owns the copyright to this, whether or not it was work for hire or not. Uh, So now it's 1974, 1975. They're both, you know, in their early 60s at this point. Um, And word starts to come out that Superman is going to get a big movie. DC is, uh, you know, all set to uh, hire the Salkins and Richard Donner as director and everything to make a big Superman movie. And it's going to be a big splash. Uh, and, you know, starring uh, the Christopher Reeve and Gene Hackman, et cetera, et cetera. This is huge. So like two years before the movie comes out, there's the, the beginning press for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and Siegel and his wife say, hey, with all of this press, does anybody want to interview us? We're the, you know, I'm the guy who created Superman. New York Times, do you want to talk to us? Washington Post, do you want to talk to us? we got a story to tell you. And they basically begin this publicity campaign about how badly DC has treated them over the years. And a bunch of artists and writers decide to support them and decide to like make a big deal themselves out of the fact that Siegel and Schuster have been mistreated, that they're basically living in poverty. um, While DC is making all of this money, Neil Adams kind of like goes out of his way to say, so Jerry Robinson is making a big push uh, you know, like the artist of one of the artists of Batman at the time is saying, you know, the guys who did Superman are being mistreated. The Association of American Editorial Cartoonists, like newspaper editorial cartoonists, mm-hmm. makes it part of their kind of, you know, like program to get justice for uh, Siegel and Schuster, et cetera, et cetera. And so each, all of these articles about the, all this publicity that's being built up for the movie, these guys are just kind of stealing it, right? Like the story has become. You know, hey the, those fat cats DC are mistreating you know the 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 creators of this here they are about to make a zillion dollars from this movie and the guys who created this character are living in poverty that's awful right that that being awful became the point of an awful lot of stories that DC was hoping were going to promote the movie and so DC finally says, you know what we've beaten you in court over and over again, but we cannot beat you in the court of public opinion right right? This, okay. Stop. Stop saying nasty things about us. And we promise that we will pay each of you an annual pension of $20,000 a year, which once again, converting that to today's money is about 90 grand, right? we will pay you this annual pension and we will restore your credits. All of the, you know, everything, the movie, the comics and everything for it are all going to say created by Siegel and Schuster again. And... They accept that, right? They're like, this is fabulous. I've gone from making nothing both for both of them uh, to making 20 grand a year. Eventually, that and that money would continue to go up over time, right? Like it was raised from 20 to 25 a few years later, et cetera. It kept going up. Um, so, you know, DC is like, fine. We, we have finally gotten to the happy ending about this, right? Like we're done fighting with our, you know, these original creators. Um, Siegel keeps getting some work occasionally for, uh, through stuff in the 60s and 70s uh, into the 80s, even uh, you know puts out a few rare pieces in the 80s, but by that point, he's getting pretty mm. old. Uh, he, when um, Steve Gerber and Jack Kirby are now both fighting against Marvel on similar problems, right? Like on the mistreatment of like who owns their stuff. Gerber is specifically fighting Marvel over the rights to Howard the Duck. Mm -hmm. And Kirby is fighting with Marvel over the rights to his original art that he's trying to get back. And so this group of artists who had been kind of brought together originally by Siegel and Schuster, right? As the people who were supporting Siegel and Schuster are now fighting for artists' rights throughout the industry. And Jerry Siegel has become this grand old man of the group kind of thing, who is still, even though he won, he got his pension and everything for this, he is still out there trying, holding these publishers' feet to the fire, right? He's contributing stuff. Like uh, Gerber does a comic called Destroyer Duck, which is to raise money for his lawsuit to get Howard the Duck back, and Siegel writes a piece for it, right? And Jack Mm -hmm. Kirby does some art for it, right? Now we're all working together for this thing. Um, Joe Schuster dies in 1992 of Heart failure. He is uh, 78 years old at this point. Uh, At the time, he was over $20,000 in debt uh, because of his legal bills, his uh, his health bills, his medical bills, and the fact that he just was really kind of terrible at managing money. Um, DC agrees uh, with his family, his heirs. We will pay that debt off. We'll, We'll cover his debts. We'll pay for his funeral. We'll handle all of this. You but you have to promise not to fight with us anymore about who owns Superman. We don't want to ever hear from any of you guys again about this. Just acknowledge outright that we own Superman, and we will keep sending you his pension. You'll keep getting the $25,000 a year that it it was by that. Um, And so they agree to that, and DC literally covers their bills and pays for for his funeral. Um, Schuster, I'm sorry, Siegel dies in 1996 from a heart attack. His wife, Joanne, keeps fighting, though, and now they've got two kids. Uh, the Copyright Act of 1976 has changed the dates that uh, termination of rights to, for copyright, again, it keeps going farther and farther, usually because Disney mm-hmm. is, uh, keeps pushing the rights to when things go into public domain farther and farther out. Um, and so they file another suit in 1997 uh, claiming that... Uh, the Copyright Act sh- you know, is over by now from this, and we are taking our copyright back. However, Schuster's family already agreed that DC owned it, right? And is not going to, can't do this. So all they're taking now is 50%, right? The Seagulls are saying, yes, we acknowledge because you cut a deal with Schuster's family that you have this. We are only claiming that we have half the copyright on Superman going forward. And so we start a whole nother lawsuit in 1997 uh, about who owns that 50% right. because they copped to the idea that Schuster's got the other 50% and he gave it to DC. And this
0: is what DC was trying to cut off by buying Schuster's family out, you know,
1: 20. Exactly. 20, uh, right. If 20, they could have convinced Siegel's family that. not to do this, they'd have been okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Warner Brothers at this point are the people who own DC. And once again, they're like, we do not want the bad publicity of getting into yet another lawsuit with the Siegel family <laughs> for this, the guy's dead already. And his family is still fighting with us at this point. There's gotta be something we can do to cut the, you know, to, to settle this. Right. Mm-hmm. So they offer, they say in 2001, they finally say, we're gonna pay you $3 million cash up front, an annual stipend of $500,000 every year. And six percent royalties on Superman. We will provide your family with full medical benefits, and every production we do with Superman going forward will say by special arrangement with the Jerry Siegel family. That's their biggest offer, right? It takes four years to build their offer up to that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, Joanne writes a letter to them saying that's pre- that we're pretty okay with that. That's a that's a strong answer we're happy with the five hundred thousand a year plus three million dollars up front you know you'll take care of our family forever etc it looks like they're gonna they're gonna accept this right in fact they write a letter that dc later says proves they meant to accept it
2: mm-hmm.
1: however mark toberoff now enters the story and mark toberoff is a lawyer who also makes movies he's a he's a movie producer and also a lawyer and like his special Right? Exactly. Yeah. His specialty is fighting with corporations about the rights of artists, right? Like he's done this a dozen times over. He's also Jack Kirby's family's lawyer at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he is also uh, uh, represents uh, James Brown, right? And Ray Charles, and a bunch of other musicians and artists and everything for their fights with record companies. So he's kind of like he specializes in he is a serious heavy hitter, and he says, uh, "I will give uh, the Seagulls fifteen million dollars for their share of the rights, and then I'm going to make my own Superman movie."
0: But they don't actually and, own a share.
1: Yeah, but he thinks he thinks they're going to win the new case, right? He's saying I'm buying their what they you know their claim basically to this. Because under the new Copyright Act of 1976, D.C. is probably going to lose.
2: Okay. All right.
1: so so that's, why DC, that's why D.C. offered them so much money in the first place was to make sure there was a non-zero chance they would lose the case. Gotcha. Right? So their offer of $3 million 500000 a year was to keep them from actually going to court with this case. Tobrov says, I'll give you $15 million. You give me you know, what you've got, and I will, I will uh, you know, carry this fight forward for you. So Siegel's fire their original lawyer and say we are not signing Warner Brothers uh deal for this we are you know we're we're going straight ahead with this court case um and uh you know if if we win then Toberoff is going to make a superman movie that he'll own himself 2002 the copyright of superboy once again comes up uh you know to be renewed right we're now we've now hit the the difference between superman and superboy in the time that they were created mm-hmm. Uh, goes off in 2002. Once again, Siegel's family files for termination. Once again, DC does as well, and boom, they're back in court fighting each other again. Um, lawsuits are flying back and forth. Sonny Bono Copyright Act: When Sonny Bono was uh, in the uh, in the House of uh, in Congress, uh, had passed a law that he had sponsored for this. That once again, on Disney's behalf, was kind of like moving public domain farther future but incidentally it also said you know what you don't have to be the spouse or child of an artist to file for copyright termination Mm -hmm. right if there is not a surviving spouse and not a surviving child for this then the next closest relative can make that case can go ahead and make that case so schuster's uh wife is dead his children are are you Know that his kid, one kid for uh, it, was also dead at this point. So, Schuster's sister and her family file for the copyright termination for their half of Superman, and then his nephew sells those rights to Toberoff. Okay, so Tobaroff now becomes the lawyer of both sides of this, right? For this, he is now representing each family separately with a chance at winning the whole thing, right? Uh, and so he files a bunch of cases, they combine the suits into one, Tobaroff combines the suits into one, and DC takes uh. Warner Brothers to court in California in 2004. That case then goes on for another five years of fighting about it. Uh, DC, the court finds that DC and Siegel's agreements had changed in writing so many times over the years that the 2001 agreement was basically unenforceable. Whether or not Joanne had in fact actually agreed to this $3 million deal or not it didn't matter because that agreement was unenforceable because you couldn't tell which letter and which version it referred to. Right. It was possible to believe that they were not even talking about the same terms, the same, this, you know, like what, what they had agreed on because there were so many versions of the agreement that had existed by that. And this is Joanne's so agreement
0: the letters, uh, that she had sent in before talking to Tobor.
1: Before, before Toboroff gotcha. at all. Right. They were, the DC's first answer to the Tobaroff suit was, you don't even own the right to this. We already made a deal with Joe. Right. right, right. We gave her $3 million and 500000 a year, and she agreed to it. She can't take that back. Right. right? But and the court said, actually, she can take that back because the letter that you guys are arguing over is crap legally. And it's unenforceable because you can't read this letter and understand what it's about. Gotcha. Um, so that's fine. That's unenforceable. Uh, so specifically, Siegel's family at that point has not won the rights to Superman for this, but they have a, reacquired at that point the specific rights to Superman's origin story. Right? Siegel's, the, the Siegel family and Tobaroff now for this own the rights to Action Comics number one, Action Comics number four, the Superman stories in both of those, and three pages out of Superman number one. Huh. That's all they've won. They separated those out from everything else that's ever been done about Superman and said the Seagulls own this. They can do whatever they want with that story. They can't do anything with any other part of Superman. If it's not in those, at that point, 29 pages, they don't own it. Right? Can't say Superboy, can't say Lana Lang, can't say uh, Heat Vision, he can't fly you know any of these other things for this because none of those things are in those 29 pages. Okay, right? This is now what they have won the rights to. But I mean that meanwhile is that enough sorry, to make
0: could they does does that preclude them from
1: adding new things to it? Like, nope. Okay. Nope, they could. They they could go on and create start over, start Superman over basically. Well, that sounds bad for DC. Uh and just, exactly, right? This is complex. So obviously DC is going to appeal this. Right, and, which they do immediately. However, as long as this fight is going on, the court once again finds Superboy definitely not work for hire. uh You know, t- and once again, you never paid for this, for mm-hmm. court. So clearly it can't be work for hire. They submitted, you know, Jerry Siegel submitted this to you uh under, uh, you know, as, as an offer for a specific thing that you never paid for. Um, and the Seagulls have revoked. DC's rights to the character. The Seagulls say, you know what? You can't use Superboy anymore. Superboy is, we're, we're withdrawing your rights to actually do that. While we're at it, Smallville, the TV show that is on right now, mm-hmm. is a show about Superboy. right? Not a show about Superman, right? Specifically, you are telling a story about Superman when he was a kid. That's Superboy. That's ours. So you don't have the right to make this TV show anymore. Right? right now, this is obviously huge, right? DC is like, holy crap, we're about to not only screw up the, the copyrights for and trademark stuff for Superman going forward. But we've got a show on the WB that we're about to use, right? Yeah. Because they've revoked our rights to use that character. Have to move to crossroads so real quick. Right. They, they appeal immediately and say this, no, 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 hang on. We're, you know, they get a zillion lawyers to uh, you know, write a whole thing for this. Another judge on the same circuit says, I'm vacating that ruling until this appeal is over. Okay. So you can't do anything with this, even though the court trial says that you won, that judge said you won, or you're not allowed to do anything about it until the appeal is over, vacated the ruling, right? Mm-hmm. So officially it's now back in limbo and DC can keep making Smallville and DC still owns all of its stuff until we settle this on appeal. Appeals go to the Ninth Circuit Court in 2012. Now we're up to 2012, right? This has been going on for so long. From uh, in the Ninth Circuit, they say, you know what? That letter from 2001 is binding. We totally understand what this letter means. We totally understand what this letter refers to. From it to say that this letter is too confusing to be used is crap legally, as a you know, as an argument. And go back and start the case over from there because that's just wrong, right? Let's go back to the argument about the 2001 letter. So in 2013, the case then was formed with that ruling in hand. The court says, well, with that in hand, the 2001 case does give all rights to Superman and Superboy to DC, right? DC has now won outright because that 2001 letter says that they accepted the fact that this was for, that they were, they were giving DC, uh, this, uh, these characters. And if they took their $3 million and their $500,000 a month, which DC was totally ready to start paying them, mm-hmm. then they were giving up all their rights, right? Uh, DC then so sues so the Schuster's as well for their half of this court finds that the original 1992 agreement did in fact bind Schuster's other relatives besides his wife and kids from this so you don't have the right to sue either because this case was already settled before schuster's sister and family got involved in the fight so dc basically as of uh 2013 has beat both of them owns all of this stuff it's perfectly fine for this and they're going on both the schuster family and laura siegel larson who is uh one of jerry's jerry's daughter for this because joanne has now died Mm -hmm. While all, all this going on, uh, his daughter Laura has appealed the case. The last time the appeal was uh, seen was in 2016, when it was rejected, and she has appealed that rejection. So literally today, these cases are now still active, right. despite the fact that right now DC seems firmly in control. You know, is 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 kind of like way out ahead for this as far as their the legal victories. Both the Schuster families and Laura Siegel-Larsen continue to fight with DC and continue to be in court with them literally today. And
0: this whole thing might go again.
1: 72 72 years after they started fighting for this, these cases are still alive today and might still wind up with some crazy outcome. We don't know, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, So we're what, 13 years from copyright law lapsing?
1: right? Right. Yeah once again obviously this is subject to change and whatever disney's lawyers do but the next time copyright comes up for this the next time that we will have to do all of this will be 2033. so at that point right now according to the law action number one and therefore everything in action number one superman himself lois lane metropolis perry white etc should all become public domain in 2033. the other stuff about superman is not public, will not be public, right? The Fortress of Solitude is not, is not uh, uh, um, public domain. Lana Lang is not public domain. Heat Vision is not uh, public domain, uh, would not be usable at that time. But if, if the laws do not change again, 2033 is when that will happen. And we'll know like- You can pretty much be sure there's no way DC is going to let that go by again, right? Like DC will make sure that that law gets changed sometime in the next 13 years. Disney should take care of it you for them in like four
0: years, I think. I think 2024 is um is when Mickey goes out.
1: Yeah, exactly. They've got plenty plenty else to fight about for this uh, to make sure that it happens, right? Yeah. So at any given time, DC owns two or three congresspeople, yeah. right? And we'll make sure, you know, I mean, Sonny Bono's dead, so it'll have to be somebody else from the last time. But <laughs> uh, it is almost certainly true that somebody will step forward on DC's behalf or on uh, Disney's behalf and make sure none of this happens.
0: I'm excited to hear yeah. Lindsey Graham's speech on it.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, I want to hear him talk about Mickey Mouse. That'd be awesome. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah. But so that kind of brings us up to date, right? Like that is the, the sordid history of uh, DC's relationship with the two guys who are most responsible for its success. They've pretty much been fighting with them straight for 72 years. It's a long time. It's a long time. Well... Thank you all so
0: much for listening. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Steve Tasker, and this has been Darren Watts. Have fun,
1: everybody. Thanks for hanging out.
0: And have a good rest of your day.